Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Yeah, give them a hand. Way to go, Ben. All right. All right. Have a seat, y'all. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. Um, and we're starting to head into the Easter season here at church. And um, I want to encourage you to just go ahead and put it on your radar to bring uh, a big, big group with you. Bring your family, bring your friends, all that stuff. Um, next week's Palm Sunday. And then after that, we've got Easter coming, 9 and 11, right here at the Grand. We'll have some fun stuff up on the roof uh, in between. So uh, put that on your calendar today. Afterwards, don't be a sissy. Get a hoodie and go to Moonlight Beach. Um, and, and let's watch these folks put on Christ in baptism. Um, so we're going to do that. This is just a great time uh, to be a part of New Vintage Church. And one of my favorite parts recently has been taking part in the still undefeated, by the way, New Vintage Church softball team uh, on Friday nights. Yeah, amen. Um, well, so you'll notice that my range of motion is going to be limited today. Uh, because of a slight uh, life-altering injury that I, I suffered uh, hitting and then sprinting to first base on, uh, in the first inning on Friday night. And uh, it was funny because when I was invited to first play, I was told that they were short on players. So they said, hey, please come. So I show up and there's like 15 guys there. And I'm like, what, what, I thought we were short on players. Well, half of them were hurt. And they were on the bench, and so we did it. And then we're running about the over-under right now is two serious injuries, like debilitating injuries per week, and this was my week to do it. So you'll see me quasi-motoing my way around the building today, dragging a leg behind me. Just be merciful and don't shake me or anything. Uh, but I will be there in my hoodie, ready to rejoice with those who are putting on Christ in baptism today. Um, the verse that comes to mind when I think about last Friday night and the injury that took place is 2 Corinthians 4.16. Outwardly, we are, fill it in, wasting away. <laughs> Amen. Inwardly, though, we're being renewed day by day. And, uh, you know, the, the NI46 translation, which I, I, that's the one that God directs to 46-year-old men like myself. It just says, outwardly, you're wasting away. The end. There's, a, there's really no clause at the end. Now, some of us are wasting away on the inside. We actually look pretty good on the outside, right? Uh, young people, particularly, all made up, looking good, still fit, can run the bases, swing the bat, catch the ball, throw as hard as you want, as often as you want. Husbands, wives, Instagram account is fully in order. Vacations are planned. Kids are going to the right schools making you proud. Everything seems fine on the outside. Inwardly, though, you're wasting away privately. Uh, I've got a word for both. Physically, you're wasting away. There's some good news for you this morning. Inwardly, you're wasting away. The same word comes to you, that God is for you. Sounds simple, but if you're like me, maybe you've had those occasions where you just get on a roll where things stink so badly for an extended period of time that you find yourself going, okay, I know that. Rationally, I've been told by the word that God is for us. And the follow-up to that is who can, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you, you think to yourself, well, apparently everybody can be against me. Or if God's really for me, maybe he's, maybe he's mad at me. Maybe You, know, you kind of want to look up and go, was it something I said? or did, or maybe he never really forgave me for what I had done before. So you continue to walk around in shame, the slavery that comes with not being or feeling forgiven, 
of what's gone behind you. It clouds the vision of what lies ahead of you. Well, in each case, the solution to that is in a knowledge that God is for you that is rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving and those who don't. God's people are the latter. Be patient, wait till after Thanksgiving, give God thanks, then play the Christmas music. It comes around one time a year, and then January 1st, I don't want to hear it again until Thanksgiving of next year. Um, exactly. Uh, and and I, don't want, I don't want to see you watching movies either. Okay, It's a Wonderful Life's Off Limits. Planes, trains, and automobiles is acceptable. But that's a Thanksgiving movie. But as you kind of keep working through them, there's a, there's a time and a place for everything. And what we'll do is, okay, the music that comes with Christmas, like very few of you probably turned on a Christmas album driving to church today. Uh, there's probably one or two weirdos in here that did that. But you have that reserved for a different time of year. Uh, if we're not careful, here's what we do. We turn resurrection into the Christmas music of the Christian faith. We do it at Easter. Hey, Easter's coming. It's time to get out all the resurrection songs for the worship team. Let's dust off the old, uh, uh, you know, all the resurrection he stumped, the lilies, Easter lilies. Let's go get one for the house. Let's get a, I used to preach in an ice cream colored white suit. Y'all be thankful I retired that one. We do different things at Easter, right? What Paul's going to suggest to us, and he's been doing it throughout Romans, is he's saying resurrection is not the Christmas music of the Christian faith. Resurrection is the soundtrack. It plays behind everything. And I think one of the things that we will often do is, is we'll take the death of Jesus. It's powerful and amazing and, and, and necessary and just every other adjective you can think of, it, 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 it's everything, right? On the other hand, what Paul seems to say is that without the resurrection, and he says it everywhere in his letters, he's the one that makes a big deal out of it. He was chronologically the first one to write down his encounter of the resurrection. In fact, his letters almost certainly came before the gospels were put down. So when you read Paul's letters, you're reading what the early Christians thought about the resurrection, now here, he's going to say to us, Christ died, and more than that, he was raised. Okay, so the more than that is, is really the key. We're going to be looking at Romans 8, one of the most cherished, memorized, quoted passages of Scripture there is. It's, it's just dripping with victory. But if you miss that piece of it, then the hard part is you don't believe it when you're down. You don't believe it when you're out. You don't believe it when you're standing over a grave. You don't believe it when the divorce papers show up. You don't believe it when the boss says, uh, thank you for your service to our company. We'll see you later. Uh, here's your 14 days uh, severance pay for your 20 years of service. You don't believe it then. You don't believe it when your kid who seemed so sweet when they were younger turns into an absolute troll when they're a teenager. Hypothetically, that could happen to somebody. My kids are great. But you know what I mean? You, you go through this and you have this disillusionment point where you're like, oh, I know I believed that once. And I want to believe it again. But I, I just don't know how I can do that. My eyes say that's not true. So even if my faith on the inside is saying, 
I want to believe it's true. My eyes tell me differently. Well, Paul does a great favor for us today. He helps us as we open up God's word and seek his face. He offers us truth that Jesus, the risen one, is unequivocally for us. Not in that kind of enabling parent kind of way where he just takes our side in any kind of conflict, tells us everything we do is perfect, that we're just little miracles running around all the time, patting us on the head, sending us off to, to do whatever. Not, that, not, that, not like that. Different. On our side, like a trusted friend. On our side, like a wise father. On our side, like someone who helps fight our battles with us and for us. For us. For us. Once upon a time, there was a man who thought Jesus was an imposter. He thought he was a false prophet. He thought he was one who led people astray. He was so zealous to get the truth out about what a fraud he thought Jesus was, he wanted to stomp out every spark of faith that he could find in Jesus' followers. He actively sought to have them prosecuted, even killed, in fact, if he could get his hands on them and if they wouldn't recant. One day, Jesus appears to him, changes his life, and he becomes the greatest proponent of, in Christian missionary in world history. His name was Paul. He knew what it was like to be skeptical. He knew what it was like to despise and hate Christians. Now, that was before he knew Jesus. Now, he's the prosecuted. He's the beaten, the chased, the imprisoned, the one hunted for murder. And nevertheless, he couldn't imagine doing anything else than what he's doing. For Paul, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Because he doesn't see the end as the grave. He sees that almost as the starting blocks to the next chapter. So if I'm living here, I'm with Jesus, and if I'm dead, then I'm with Jesus. So either way, win-win. And so that allows him then to live courageously. He doesn't fear the prison cell. He doesn't fear the shipwreck. He doesn't fear the beatings. He doesn't fear the ridicule. He doesn't fear the authorities. He knows what he saw. And so this process of God taking and transforming this man from zealot against Christianity towards zealot for Jesus really becomes the hinge pin on which the Christian faith moves forward in the world historically. Paul understood not only the truth of the gospel, he understood the power of the gospel. The gospel is the truth about the world, about humankind. Most of all, God who created and redeemed the world through his son who died for our sins, was raised from the grave and works in his people who carry on his life and his ministry until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so Sundays, even the fact that we're meeting today and not yesterday, uh, we do so in part because the early Christians worshiped on his resurrection day. Not the third day he was dead, his resurrection day. It's good news not only that Jesus died for the atonement for our sins, but that his resurrection meant death to death. It meant that nothing could separate him from God, that us from God's love. Nothing could triumph over God. That Jesus was Lord even over death, and because he's our Lord, he's Lord over everything, and that means the stuff that happens in this life or when life is over. That there really is no point in which he gets out-arm wrestled by the world or by Satan or by any of the evils of this world. Uh, evil can bring it, and he's more than match for it. And that is the one that Paul tries to say, listen, that's the one who's for you. And so if he's for you, who can be against you? Now, 
The converse is true. If God is against us, who can be for us? <laughs> if, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a way of putting things that makes you go, all right, if the reciprocal is true, okay, if God is against us, I mean, good luck. The Israelites learned that in their journey. When they're walking with God, they prosper. When they're not walking with God, they experience defeat. And it doesn't matter how strong the military seems on paper, they lose. And no matter how weak it seems on paper, they win when God is with them. And so the Bible recounts this history of God's interactions with people that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and testifies that when a person is right with God, when they're uh, walking in the power of the Spirit, when they're walking in alignment with the will of God, they really are undefeated. They're undefeatable, ultimately. Now, when we get back to Romans 8 here, um, we're going to hear our brother Paul say, after all of this stuff that he acknowledges, and he'll say, he'll, he'll rattle off a list of things that are awful in this world, and he'll ask rhetorically, can any of those things separate us from the love of God? And he'll ask, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Here's what Paul writes. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So notice all that, that list there, right? He's, a, he's raised, he's at the right hand of God, he's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, he writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he goes on and he gives you this list of things and these obstacles, the things that we often say are too big, they're too powerful. I mean, everything, angels, demons, height, depth, space, sin, whatever. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. The resurrection that he says, and he, he says he died, and more than that, he was raised in verse 34. It assures us of the forgiveness of God. Let's start there. I remember reading of a certain psychiatrist who said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of their forgiveness. The truth is that most people, myself included, <laughs> you've got things that you've done that you think to yourself, I mean, some of them people know about, some of them they don't know about, but you still carry it around. It's in the cupboard. It's in the drawer. It's in the closet. It's in the safe deposit box of the soul. And what he's trying to say is, no, the atoning death of Jesus is sufficient to cover your sins, but even more than that, it is a definitive sign 
of God's forgiveness. It's a gift of a kind that, that we don't even know how to receive it because we aren't used to ever receiving anything like it and never have. That's why it continues to not compute in our processors. It's why we always tend to get sucked back into the old kind of slavery to shame of what we've done in the past is because we don't know how to receive anything like it because there is nothing like it other than God's love. So when somebody, a human being tells us they love us, yeah, they do. They do. Then that might be the best form that we can get it in this life. But the love of God is made of entirely different material. It's a different octane. It lasts longer. It's stronger. It's more complete. And it's less self-interested than anything else we can receive in this world. And so the atoning death of Jesus is what that signifies. It's, it's the love of God from which we cannot be separated. Something you've done, something you've thought, something in your best moments even, or worst moments or whatever, something you're deeply, deeply and sadly ashamed of, something that makes your conscience nag you or torment you or condemn you, okay? We get ashamed of those things and it pulls us away from the experience of the love of God. The Christian good news begins with the assurance of forgiveness in Christ. Available all the time to those who believe and repent. Instead of being able to look God in the face, sometimes we may feel like, or look one another in the face, we want to run away and hide when our conscience troubles us. But Paul talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about the Holy Spirit and how temptation sometimes is a sign that you're spiritually alive. It's the person that feels nothing, feels no shame or whatever can be worried, but you don't want to become a slave to that. You don't want that to continue to weigh you down. You want to continue to take that stuff and re-surrender it to God so that he can continue to remind you of your forgiveness. And you don't have to carry that around. In his public ministry, several times Jesus said to people, your sins are forgiven. In the upper room, the last night on earth, he refers to the communion cup as the blood which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He links our forgiveness with his death and he taught that he was going to die burying our sin and guilt and condemnation in his own innocent person in order that we might be forgiven. Now go back to verse 34. He says something we got we to make sure we catch, okay? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, more than that, more than that. He was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. More than that, he's saying he didn't just die for us. He was raised for us. We don't serve a very good but very dead person. That's super important, folks, because he says he's actively interceding for us. We don't, so we don't, we don't celebrate Jesus like we celebrate uh, George Washington or, or, or Teddy Roosevelt or Mother Teresa or somebody like that. Nope, they're dead. He's not. And so the difference is that we serve a living Jesus, and he's saying, so yes, he died for our sins, but more than that, more than that, he was raised who's now at the right hand of God interceding for us. 
So we don't remember Christ like we remember the Alamo or hope Jesus' sacrifice, you know, hopefully it has no expiration date on it. What Paul is saying is, no, Jesus is alive as ever, and nobody can accuse or guilt or shame or damn you because Jesus is alive and he's interceding for you. Jesus is alive still and still interceding for us. And then he goes on. So the resurrection then assures us of God's power. It doesn't just stop there. If God is for us, then even death can't be against you. Even death. I mean, it's one thing to know that our sins are forgiven, but there's always been one great equalizer, death. The tax rate may be 35%. The death rate is 100%. And that's what scares you. It still gets us more than anything. You know, um, human race, we've always been troubled by what happens when we die. In the ancient world, some people believe that when you die, you kind of go out like a candle. There was an ancient tombstone epitaph that was so popular that it was printed in Latin and Greek on tombstones. And it read, I was not, I was I am not, I don't care. That was literally what they wrote on their tombstones. We're here, then we're not. That was the way that they saw it. Death is no respecter of people. It is not choosy. It impacts everyone, everywhere. Doesn't matter how much money you have, J.P. Morgan He found himself so lucky, he had signed up to take a cruise back before it was cool. On a big, beautiful ship, one of his companies had helped fund called the Titanic. Signed up to be on the cruise ship, last minute, decided to back out. Turns out he felt lucky for doing that. Good decision. Lucky decision. So he patted himself on the back only to die of a stroke, not shortly thereafter. I remember a stretch of about 10 days this is maybe 2011 or 12, where it felt like almost everybody I knew that was my age or younger around me was dying. And that one week, three young moms that I saw died of some strange illness. A guy that I'd had for a brief time as an intern, it was a colleague of mine, eight or nine years younger than me, died of colon cancer, father of four. I buried an infant from NBC, newborn. And then a guy I'd played baseball with in high school took his own life jumping off the bridge downtown, and I went and did that funeral. Ten days. Death, 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 death. So pastors, I think, get a chance to to see all of those things. Funerals of a person who's in the Lord, dies at 95 years old, lives this amazing life, down to shoebox-sized coffins. You see it all. But if you don't buy the resurrection, if you don't really buy it, you don't really, it's not in your bones, that can overwhelm you. But when you realize that this is not, for those who are in the Lord, that this is a, this is a, a moment, that it's a, it's a, it's a temporary phase, a very temporary phase, for a person to cross from one life into the next, and that this isn't the end end. 
that death has them but can't keep them. Then it reshapes the way that you see death. And it makes you want to live differently and encourage people to live differently. I have this sense that when he's talking to the, to the, to the Romans here, he's trying to help them be courageous because you have this situation where now they're facing the empire of Rome. And this is called Romans because it's in, directed to people in Rome. And you're facing the spear and you're following somebody that everybody knew had been crucified. They saw it with their own eyes. The only way that you would want to go around and preach the gospel after that is because you know that the tomb was empty. That he got up again. If you've had that kind of week, month, year, decade, lifetime, where everything that you, uh, that, that gives you life, it feels like it's choking you out or it's bringing you down. Maybe death, maybe your first Easter without a loved one. Maybe it's an empty seat at the Thanksgiving table, Christmas table, Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever it is. Take comfort in what he's saying this morning. It can be a crushing thing to just behold death and think that it really does have the last word. But something changes. I remember, my dad happens to be here in the, in the audience today, but um, there's a little lake up in Crestline called Lake Gregory. And about an hour, 15 minutes from here. Raise your hand if you, even, if you know where that is. Anybody? Okay, we got some. Well, there's a water slide there. And it's not one of those uh, water slides that, you know, now with like, you know, bumpers and, you know, oh, you can only go feed first and all of that. This is probably like 1980, okay? This is where safety is way down the list of priorities, okay, in 1980. So it's like now, if you've ever bought a, uh, a slip and slide, they barely sell them anymore. If you can find them, they have all of these, you know, warnings and everything like that. Back, back then, in that time, if you had a roll of trash bags and a hose, you were good. It's like just, hey, they left the trash bags, let's go. You know, on a summer day, maybe get, get some shampoo or something, throw it out there too, make it a little extra slick. And then the question was, how far past the end can we go? You know, and hey, can I go skid across the pavement or whatever and not get too hurt? I bet you can't. I bet you can't. Well, yes, I can. And everybody take off and do it. We didn't care about safety. Lake Gregory was like that. You had two tubes. One was allegedly long and fast. The other was uh, a little slower but more violent. And they both came out fairly next to each other, maybe, I don't know, 10 feet apart. And so at this particular time, I'm, I don't know, maybe five years old, but before swimming age at this point, maybe four, I don't know, my sister and I decide we're going to go down. And we're going down, and dad's job's wait at the bottom in the pool, and when each of us comes down, grab us and then set us over on the, on the stairs. And there's a, a pool there that's fairly deep. I'm probably, for a grown man, maybe waist deep, something like that. And um, anyways, we go down, my sister comes down first. And he grabs my sister. Well, I happen to, apparently I'm getting down there pretty fast because I come out and I catch him off guard. So I shoot out the other tube into the water and probably because of the skull or something, I just sink like a rock. I'm going to go under. But he's got my sister. And I can remember 
<laughs> it was like the, the baby on the front of their Nirvana album. I just kind of go, go, into the, go into the water, and I don't know what's going on. I'm like, I'm like, where, you know, when you're that young, you're like, it's murky lake water, so you can't really see anything. And it's like, I'm down here. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to swim. <laughs> you're just kind of in the water and, uh, and everything. And then it, it, I, nobody got me for a while. And so now my sister and I have a whole set of jokes about the, about who's the favorite kid and how this proves it. But in reality, it was just a bad break. We just happened to come down at exactly the same time. We were supposed to be staggered. And, and so I, I stayed down there for a while. And he, it, it's hard to, to necessarily even um, find your kid in that water because it's a fairly good-sized little pool, and the water's murky. Well, eventually, he finds me. Grabs me, puts me up, and I'm, I'm probably crying or coughing up water or whatever. Puts me on the side of the pool, and obviously I'm alive and talking to you today. But the feeling of being in there underneath the water, not knowing what to do, and feeling panicked and feeling like I don't know what I'm exactly supposed to do, and is this, is this about it? Is this it? You, know, you, can, you still have that feeling. It's like, if you don't believe that your father is there to grab you, that's a scary, horrible place to live, right? And what Paul's trying to say is, that by giving us that list, right, height, depth, angels, demons, he's saying to us, God is for you. So you will not drown. You won't drown. You may be scared, but you're not going to drown. And because of that, you don't need to be afraid. Because of the resurrection, though death may take us, it doesn't keep us. In a remarkable text, Paul Asks us to imagine the things that could separate us from the love of God. He asks the question, then rattles off a bunch. Uh, death is in there, uh, you know, but, but no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, he's not saying, you know, I, I hope. I have a hunch, I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that means everything, guys, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Build your life on the risen King, sisters and brothers. I think a lot of us spend our time, we still, we don't have any confidence that God actually likes us very much. It's like we're in third grade. You remember how you write a little note? Do you like me? Check the box, yes or no. And it's like we live our lives sending that kind of thing to God. Like, hey, God, do you, do you like me? Do you, do you love me? Paul's saying, there's no doubt. The cross says there's zero doubt. The resurrection says he's still there. He's alive. He's not sort of for you. He doesn't give begrudgingly. You don't have to extort his love or blackmail him to give it to you. He loves us with the kind of love 
that we are not used to, sadly. And that's good because I hope that he can do better than some of the stuff we, we pass around and call love these days. He can. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Now, earlier in Romans, Paul reminds us that the love of God died for us not because we were good, though he admits, yeah, somebody might die for a relatively good person. But God shows his love for, the, uh, for us in this, that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for the ungodly. It isn't just the death of Christ that makes our relationship to God possible. It's the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus stays dead, he is a sacrifice. If he's alive, then he's a savior. And he's both. He's a sacrifice and a savior. Sacrifice and a savior. I love the way he talk, Jesus talks about this all the time. When he's walking the earth, in John chapter 11, just one example, the text says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. See, it's not just that he dies. It's that he lives and he intercedes for us today. He doesn't need us or that it's not like he doesn't have any life without us or anything like that. It's because of his love. It's who he is. It's not some weird codependent thing. He doesn't need us. He loves us anyways. He loves it because it's in, us because it's in his nature to love. He sends his son to make peace between me and him. And after the penalty for my sins was paid, God raises him to life. And now Christ, the victorious warrior, it says, sits at the right hand of God interceding for me. He's on my side. And because he lives, I am more than a conqueror over the things that might drown my soul, like death. We don't just have his memory, sisters and brothers. We have more than that. We have him. And because we have him, nothing Nothing can separate us from God's love. Because I have him, he intercedes for me when Satan would accuse me or tempt me or seek to harm me or convince me that God is my competitor or my enemy or he's trying to ruin my life. He steps in and says, no, God's trying to save it, son. He's trying to help you live it abundantly. He's trying to keep you from doing the stupid, silly, sinful things that almost wrecked you before. Christ is not my competitor or my enemy or my oppressor. He is my redeemer, my intercessor, my conquering king, and my Lord. The question is, is he yours? Because the power of the resurrection is available to all, but sadly not accessed by all. It's good news, if God in fact loves us, that he alone is judge of all. Because that means that someone who is good and righteous and loving is the judge. And he will do the right thing. Oh, yes, you will do the right thing. And so I don't sit in that seat, and neither do you. He does. And he loves us based on our faith in his son. It's not what we do. It's in whom we believe. Do we believe in ourselves? Famine, death, sword? Or do we believe in Jesus, the risen one? Our advocate, the one who intercedes for us. And if Jesus is dead, then what we have are promises. 
but if he's alive, then that means he continues to work in the world mightily. So when people sometimes will come, they'll say to me, I really struggle with this particular aspect of Christian teaching or, or, or whatever. I, I try to remind them, look, uh, none of that, your agreement with whatever God says has anything to do with whether he exists or not. I don't like Dallas Cowboys fans. They do exist, right? <laughs> so my, my fact that I don't like them or I don't, I don't like what somebody says doesn't mean they don't exist. The question is, if he does, then okay, is what he's saying true? Not do I like it, true. And if Jesus did in fact raise from the grave, then you need to pay attention to anything he says. If he didn't, why pay attention to anything he said? He's crazy. Like C.S. Lewis's Lord Liar and Lunatic paradigm. Right? He's one of the three. And so maybe for you this morning, the question is, what do you make of the, resurrect, the resurrection and the resurrected one? Paul would suggest, having seen him face to face at the peak of his zealotry against wanting to believe it, Paul, super educated man, spending his life's work trying to destroy Christianity on a dime, just like that turns around. So much so that the early church doesn't buy it. It takes him years for them to begin to trust him, and it takes some people vouching for him, Barnabas and others being willing to say, yeah, I think he's legit. Boy, was he ever, and he gives us this great gift of realizing that Jesus rose from the dead and it changes everything. If God is for you, even death can't stand against you, sister or brother. And in Jesus, God says unequivocally and eternally, I am with you and I am for you. So live victoriously. Don't buy the lies of the culture that lead you to believe that you should walk around in sadness, brokenness, and fear for the rest of your life. You don't have to live that way. Live boldly and courageously, not because, not just out of some weird like willpower or self-realization. Do it because God is for you, and if he's for you, who can stand against you? Walk in that. Walk in that. That's what we're going to do this morning as we gather around the Lord's table. Go ahead and invite the, the band to come on back up. You should have gotten the elements of communion on your way in. If you did not, you'd like some, go ahead and put your hand in the air, and we'll, we will uh, bring it to you. As we head toward Easter, let resurrection be the soundtrack of our faith as we live. He's not dead, he's alive. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We'll take the bread and the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus at this time. And as we do, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, now, for the gift of God being for us, we give you thanks. Father, for those who haven't yet surrendered their life to Jesus, I pray that today might be the day. That they might turn back towards you if they once followed you, or they might take the step toward Jesus today. Father, I thank you for how the resurrection takes away our shame, takes away our guilt takes away 
our feelings of being defeated for the rest of our life, our, our sorrow over death so we can grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And so, Father, today, for those who are hurting or broken or scared, uh, people who need what our brother Paul shares with us today, the victory that comes from knowing that in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and loves us still as he sits at your right hand interceding for us. We remember him now with bread and cup. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.